Welcome back to the Creative Culture Podcast powered by the Adobe Creative Cloud. This week, it's been about a year in the making for this week's episode. This is the first episode that I've had a guest and we recorded this probably a year ago this week. <laughs> Something around there. Life got in the way, procrastination. Um, I feel bad for it, but it'll never happen again starting in 2020. Uh, I will never go this long while recording something, creating something, and not putting out into the world. This week, my guest is Dylan Minguez, an incredible artist, muralist, painter, designer, graphic designer, you name it, he does it. Uh, We had a phenomenal conversation about dealing with clients in the commercial side, um, setting parameters, and then also like some of the music that has inspired us through people discovered today and artists we've listened to for decades now. It was such a good conversation. Actually listening to it a year later, it brought me back to some concepts I was thinking about and discussing at the time that was very interesting that I think is actually even more relevant in my creative life and my work life now dealing with clients. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. I know I did even a year later. Uh, We're going to have Dylan on again for sure. Stick around after because some of the selects that we talk about, I'm going to drop in for us to hear. He actually emailed me recently with a couple of albums that he considers perfect. And it's really funny because I literally was listening to the same album the other night (laughs) while making dinner. The world works in a very, very strange way. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Stick around for a couple of selects from that and enjoy the conversation with Dylan. Welcome to Crave Culture Podcast. Thanks. You you walked in, you first said, hey, I'm a fan. That meant a lot for me. Yeah. I, I listened to that first podcast and I heard some Frank Ocean, some uh, Maggie Rogers, which is near and dear to my heart on two counts and uh, a couple things that I didn't know. So Mag- Maggie cool. Rogers, that one, I'm already just going to dive into that one. How does that hit home for you? Because she hits very close to home for me. Well, the first album was a, was a gold mine, you know, with Pharrell produced, found her, I think, mm-hmm. wasn't, yeah. that, wasn't right. she a Pharrell prodigy? And um, so I really dug that first album. I'm not as big a fan of the second one. I, I feel like maybe Pharrell left the studio and I haven't read to see what the details are. Do you know? Yeah. So the first one, I don't, he actually didn't even do, she's self-produced all of it herself. Ooh. So the first one in the first podcast, I took a piece from her and him. She was a student at Berkeley and she was, it was a, a panel where he came in and listened to a couple of students music and he was just blown away by her, but she makes everything by herself in a studio all her own equipment left alone, like a little hibernating bear, you know, like a recluse. Um, and so I definitely agree that first EP was a little bit better. I liked this album a lot, but I think the first one is, was better. Yeah. I think the appeal for me with her and with artists like her is when someone takes that folk, like Americana ish sort of zone um, to use a couple of terms loosely and they bring a little bit of that beat electronica stuff into it. I'm mm. a sucker for that. <laughs> does that. So there's a, there's a band called rivers and robots out of the UK Okay. and little small, uh, independent Christian band, which, you know, as soon as you put that label on people are like, well, I'm not going to listen to that. The, <laughs> yeah. And I don't need to have that as a label, but I just happened to hear the music first and liked it and realized, Oh, they're a Christian band out of the UK. Cool. But that's their whole vibe. Really nice harmonics and then some really nice beats and some cool little blips and glitches and things behind it all that make it really sound swell. Harmonies are a way to my heart. I always tell any girl I've dated, if you can can find a good harmony and send it to me, you're already in my heart. You know, that and some food. That's that's the way. Harmony, yeah, harmony (laughs) in both. And like I said before we started, that's why I'm, I'm a little raspy today because I was on the way home from Delaware last night, uh, the city, and uh, have a house up that way. And on the way home from there, I just had a mood for Journey. So queued up the Journey playlist and I was singing it at the top of my lungs. What's your go-to Journey song? Escape. It's probably Escape. one of the greatest rock and roll songs <laughs> of all time. It's, it's, really a, it's really rock and roll perfection. The sophomoric lyrics, the Neil Sean solos, the structure, the chord changes, it's perfection. Do you think that's overlooked a little bit in the top 10 list of greatest rock songs of all time. Oh yeah. It'll, <laughs> it'll never be there. Yeah. 
That's amazing. So I want to talk to you about your creative process. You've been a creative for how many years now? Long time. I've been full-time at it since 1998, but been drawing all my life. Was drawing always your first love into the creative field and the arts field? Yeah, for sure. I started drawing not just cartoons, but lettering as a little kid. And like a lot of things, and hopefully for all people, which we know is not true, but I received feedback for that and was told, you know, in bits and pieces along the way, hey, you can do that, you can do that well, you know, that little prey stuff. So I just kept at it. And that evolved into advertising after college and have been doing that ever since in different forms. So I read somewhere you were a Marine. I was, so the super quick timeline yeah, real quick. is, uh, yeah, real quick, is Ohio State, dropped out, went off to the Marine Corps for a four year tour as an enlisted guy, went back to school at CCAD, finally got that degree, and then I've been in the workforce ever since. Those four years as a Marine, you know, that, that stint, did that carry over to the rest of your life as an artist? Is there any principles that you took from that that still thrive inside you? Yeah, for sure. I think the one thing that's, that's an easy mark is, is that when I'm in a project and it's not going well or the clients are difficult or I'm being difficult or whatever the conditions are that make things less than optimal, I think to myself, you know what? You're not back in the Marine Corps anymore. And it's not that my Marine Corps experience was bad. I lived in Hawaii. My wife and I were there together. I surfed. If I wasn't you know, wearing a badge and driving a patrol car as a grunt with a badge, I was surfing and it was a good life. But it's still the Marine Corps. And um, I had no interest in staying in after four years. I wanted to go back to school and pursue art full time. So all I did in the Marine Corps art-wise was I just drew goofy little cartoons, little editorial things around that, that were um, revolved around the base that I was stationed at and some of the people there. And um, they were a little cutting at times, but I seemed to find a small audience there and you know, nothing ever got published except for, you know, passing between hands. And, uh, but it was a, it was an outlet that kept me drawing while I was in. That's amazing. So what is your personal creative process? If there's a, not so generic, but you have multi different style of clients coming. What is your creative process? You have multi different style clients coming to you. Is there a single red thread that runs through all of your creative process for you personally? Is it music? Do you go and make lookbooks? What is your self personal creative process? There's a couple things that take place on a really broad level. And one of those is couched in the fact that I own a small business and I am the wearer of many hats. The business is mostly me. My wife, Janet, is a huge help to the business, but she's only part-time. And in addition to me, there are, of course, you know, a multitude of folks around town that come in on d different projects, like the one I just did for AEP, and they help out. A couple different guys come in to help out with that and get it completed. But in terms of the process then, because I'm wearing all these hats, the first thing that's so critical to my process is setting expectations with the clients. And I know that sounds really boring. It's so spot on though. <laughs> dude, it's just a game changer. And I just had a conversation with one of my favorite colleagues this, uh, just this afternoon about, uh, sounds like a pretty ugly situation that happened out in town. I don't name names, I'm not in the gossip, but some things went wrong with this particular situation, not mine, his. And my first thought was, were expectations properly set before anything started? The second thing that I do in terms of the creative process is I always pursue an idea. And that's a really vague, you know, super broad thing to say. And also sounds a little trite or, you know, common. But as a creative, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I think to, to touch on that really quickly, in terms of the importance of that pursuit, the issue that I see all too often with, with my fellow creatives is that we have been trained, art school is, I think, often to blame, to slide something across the table or pull something up on screen and say, here are my concepts. And the reality is, from what I've seen over and over, the fact is what I'm looking at is a well-executed design of some kind, firing on all pistons of design. However, there's actually no concept there. It's just great design. And somebody may be listening to this and thinking, wow, this guy's a real turd. <laughs> I think there's a time and place for just beautiful design. Here's, here's an example. There's something beautiful about a well-designed chair. Is there a high concept behind that chair? Probably not, it's just beautifully designed. The principles of, of product design are in place there. So I think there's, a, there's reason to say not everything has a high level idea behind it. But what I do with clients and the work that I do with clients, I believe demands an idea. 
And here's an example that I was uh, telling someone recently. There's a trend right now to do a lot of outdoor design, patch badge type stuff, right? It's, it's kind of really ran its course in my opinion, but it's still really out there. And what I see most often is a similar train of, of thought or similar process with those designs. I see designs that, that encapsulate some type of outdoor thing with mountains and trees and other outdoor elements. The problem is that park name that's on there or that whatever that name is that's on there could be swiped with some other name because the reality is there's nothing conceptual in that design that ties that design to that specific location. There's often not even a singular visual element that's from that exact location in that design. And I'm not suggesting that everything has to be over-designed. Like you have to have 18 elements. Somebody goes, oh, I see it's Yellowstone. But come on, we can do a little extra work in our, in our you know, setup in our process to say, what's that one visual element that I can pull into this that people will be able to look at it and say, I know where that is without seeing the name. So it may not be the best example, but that's one thing I see currently that really irks me. So when I approach a project after we've set expectations, which of course one of those expectations are have an idea, I really want to make sure there's some type of conceptual element to the work that I'm bringing to a client. Again, it may not be super high level, cerebral stuff, but I want some conceptual element there, period. Otherwise, I don't feel like I'm giving the client their very best, especially when they're paying top dollar for it. Do you think people aren't taking as serious in the research process for a client? What do you mean? Are they not going deep enough? Like, like you're talking about, it's like they're just making things because they think it looks cool, but they're not going as far as finding the research and making a narrative inside their design. Do you think that that extra step is being lacked now by a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think it's hard for us to sit here and, and know what all the reasons are why that's not happening, but I, I definitely agree with you that it's not happening enough. And I would hope that, you know, if clients are listening to this podcast, that they would say, you know, is my designer bringing the very best to that, to the, to that uh, project or this, this, this ongoing relationship? It's always my hope that we're, we're, we're each, you know, the designer and the client are always, you know, expecting the very most from each other. So you mentioned something about film, or, um, you mentioned something about art school and that was interesting because I actually interviewed a girl that just graduated from an art school here locally, I won't name, but she said it failed her in the fact of it was just check the box, check the box, no hmm. pushback. Hmm. Is that a problem that, is that a problem that art schools need to fix? It's, it's, she got into her job and all of a sudden it was like, Hey, your grids are not straight. You are not making your files properly labeled, things like that in the real world that she didn't actually have somebody pushing her to tell her, Hey, that's not good enough. Like, Oh, you just did your project. Cool. Check mark. You're good. Mm-hmm. Move on to the next project. Is that dinning for the next generation? I think, I think it's, I think it's happening. I, I don't disagree. I think that schools, I'll put it this way. I taught college for a couple of years. I took a break from the industry a handful of years ago and I just checked out and went and taught college. I did some freelance while I was doing that, but I wanted to see what this was like. It's a whole longer story we don't have time for probably, but I can say from that couple years experience that there is a push to, as you could expect, to get a curriculum fulfilled in a given semester. And it's, it is very difficult to push as hard as I wanted to push. The, the challenge is to find those students who wish to be pushed. It's a difficult thing to figure out. Mm. But the good news, I think, is there, there are kids out there that really do want to be pushed. Like this girl, it sounds like you know she was in that position. Uh, I, I try not to make too wide a sweeping gestures you know, or, or, or judgment call about what I see out there. I think I've, I've actually met and worked with a lot of kids who are extremely talented and want to be pushed and can be pushed. Uh, but yeah, the schools are, they're a bit of a machine. Right. That's unfortunate. Mm. So I think the one thing I, I might i might offer to her is, or others like her is, if she recognizes that it didn't fulfill everything she wished, I think that's a great sign. And I hope that she's got the fortitude and the, and the, the will to uh, ask, you know, people around her, or at least share that experience with people that she's working with now at this job and saying, this is what I went through it wasn't everything I wanted it to be. And let's talk about some ways that I can make sure that doesn't happen here in this workplace. 
you know, help, help me push. Um, whatever that looks like for that particular crew. What was it? Was there a single or a, a batch of characteristics you found in students when you did teach that you knew, oh, I could push this person? Was there any sparkle or magic you kind of saw on somebody or anything specific? Some of the best students were ones that just asked questions. I think that's a key, a huge sign, bright sign that this, this kid is genuinely interested in doing more than just the, the, the standard curriculum. Curiosity. Yeah. There's the word. <laughs> yep. So you think curiosity is such a key in, I, I think it's a key in all in life, but especially in the arts, you have to be curious to find those little patches. And even like we were just talking a minute ago, where it's like researching for a client, you need to be curious about your client. And I think, I know we run into it where some even our, our clients aren't curious about themselves, <laughs> which is a weird True. real realm we get into. Yeah. But what about the concept of creating parameters as a creative? I've been talking to a lot of people lately about this idea of when you tell a creative, hey, make whatever you would like, it's almost like you can't do it. I know as, as a filmmaker, if someone told me, hey, make whatever you like, you'd have you know, Schindler's List meets Michael Bay you know, flying cars. And it's like with unlimited budget, no parameters, you could make anything. And it's probably gonna be just a pile of crap. <laughs> but wait, are you working on this script right now? I am. Okay. <laughs> I am not, but maybe, maybe one day. That's, that's not a bad idea. But the idea of not having parameters, do you think parameters need to be put to have a good creative process or to create a better outcome instead of giving someone free reign to the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, I think um, the free reign option is uh, the fine art route. Mm. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. Um, there's a, to go back to what I was saying earlier, you know, there's a, there's something beautiful about making beauty. And Steven Sagmeister does a great talk on that, that I encourage anyone to listen to. It's, it's, it's a beautiful talk. I heard him do it in person and it, it was uh, emotional and, and yet, you know, grounded in some logic and how he unpacks all this and gives a history behind it. So it's a great talk. That said, we as commercial designers, commercial artists are in the business of problem solving. And I know that's not a shock to anybody who's a designer who's <laughs> listening to this. They're like, oh great, this guy's a real gem. But it's the truth, we are here to problem solve. And so in order to problem solve, we have to have parameters. We have to set expectations, like I said earlier, around what's, who are we talking to? Um, all, all kinds of details have to be understood in order for us to accurately go forward. Otherwise, next thing you know, we're out of scope. And mm. you know, that honeymoon period that happens with a new client, which is so great for a handful of days or weeks or months or even years. I think those great relationships turned sour are almost always because expectations were not set and param parameters were not properly established for individual projects or for maybe just the relationship in general. I, I completely agree. Scope is, <laughs> scope is bright is 100% the most important thing on a project at the end of the day. I yep. mean, we've gone, we've had so many email requests that were so out of scope or, you know, 17 months down the line after the project's been done. It's like, Yikes. hey, do this, do this one more thing for us. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, this was not even in the scope at all. But then you also, even I know you have a small business and we do too, you know, we're a team of seven here and we're all kind of scattered about, but in a team of seven, you're almost sometimes scared of, do I push back too much on a client? Like, are they going to leave me? Are they going to be like, I don't want to work with them again. And so we battle that. I know almost every day or it's like, wow, they're asking for something a little bit extra. Like, can we give it to them? How much extra should we give them before we say no? And if we say no, are they going to go find somebody else? Mm -hmm. I know. I don't know if you guys deal with that thought process, but we deal we with do. it for sure. Yeah, we do. Um, I'll give you a recent example a couple of recent examples and I'll, I'll make these as quick as I can. I know we're no, not we here got plenty for, of time. We're not going to do a Joe Rogan podcast. And talk <laughs> we <three> can. <laughs> no, we're, no, we're not. A <laughs> um, couple of recent examples just did a job for AEP and they have a new space downtown called the charge space. It's really nice. It's in the 80 on the commons building. And so up on the sixth floor, I was, uh, the project scope was to do a, a huge wall ceiling to both sides. And then I also, proposed the idea of doing a split stairwell uh, lettering design that you have to stand in just the right position in order to read the short phrase. And if you move away from that, of course, it, it scrambles to a point. And you, so it kind of invites that person to interact with that physical space to get the message. That was the project. And that was what was written out in the scope. After the project was over 
as they're establishing the new identity for this this uh, this uh, sorry this laboratory called Charge. They said, "Could you take the lettering off the wall and just provide it to us as a vector?" Now, as a veteran in the industry, that's a slippery slope mm. because I know, and I'm saying this on a podcast that will go public. I know that that could be misused. In other words, that charge thing could be licensed. It could be put on a merchandise that could be sold. I have no idea. But I also know life is short and there are certain things worth pursuing and there are certain things not worth pursuing. I also know that they've been a great client to me. They've been great to collaborate with. They didn't haggle about pricing. They respect what I'm doing as a designer around town. It's been a great relationship. So for me to vector that and hand it over to them, no problem. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a way of saying, thanks guys, you were great to work with. And I do the, the dealer, mm-hmm. you know, shuffle with my hands and we're done, right? Another uh, example was uh, Give Yoga is a client up in Clintonville, just did a wall for them, an interior space for them. Beautiful space done by Grad Architects and branding by Mint Design. You like that little quick plug? <laughs> and um, after the thing was finished, the owner reached out and said, we, we love that lettering so much that you did. Could we put this on some on a piece of merchandise? Same issue, more or less. And same expectations, same parameters, if you will, to use those words, are in place. The pricing is set at such where I'm not concerned about something like a piece of merchandise um, being resold. And I know there are people that are going to listen to this and go, you're an idiot. <laughs> I'm aware of what I'm doing. Right. I'm also, in the same way that I did it for AP, it's, it's my way of saying, sure, it's okay. I love who your brand is. And I, know, and I guess to put it differently, I don't believe in karma, but I think there's a, there's just a, it's a way of just establishing a value in the relationship that you really can't put a price on. And again, I know that it sounds somewhat naive for me to say that, but I don't worry about these things all that much. Maybe someday I'll, you know, look back on this and go, wow, we did that podcast with Blake and that was a really <laughs> stupid thing to admit, but I do it. I, as I do that little bit of extra to say, thank you. I appreciate who you are. And I appreciate you bringing us in as a small design studio, trusting us with this project. Here's that extra little thing. Now, going back to what you said, Blake, it's a slippery slope. It's a delicate dance to put a couple of ways of saying it. And I've never been pushed in three and a half years I've had Mingus Design to do something above and beyond a scope that I thought was completely uncomfortable. So I haven't dealt with that where I've thought, man, we have got to put the brakes on it right now. But having spent years in corporate advertising, serving clients who have multi-million dollar, even billion dollar um, scopes in total, I have no problem having that conversation. Yeah, that, that's the exact space we play in is the big billion dollar companies that they can push the little guys and they're not afraid to because they know, hey, we're the big guy. Like, we're going to take advantage of you if we have to, if we can yeah. in any sort of way. But for the most part, our relationship has been really thorough and trusted. And I think that that's kind of nails what you're saying is you're building trust and you're building trust equity with these clients that you're having, where it's like, you're not going to go and screw me by taking my vector somewhere else or doing something else. We've, we've had a great relationship. Let's continue that. Yeah. And to touch on that one more time, I'll give you one more example where I can't yeah. name the client, Absolutely. but they're a um, international client. I can't even show the work on Instagram or my site. Wow. But, um, just not allowed to, mm. but it's out there. It was NDAs. <laughs> yep. And it was one of these, uh, it was the most complicated contract that I've done yet to the point where I called my attorney and I said, I don't, I can't even interpret this. Can you help me? And he read it over and he said, Dylan, just sign it. And I, I really can't go into a lot of detail here, mm. but, um, their clauses were so inclusive to a point where I, again, I was just baffled. <laughs> and the reality was it paid very, very well. And he said, the way this plays out, that if it goes south, he goes, you, you, you have options that um, no one likes to think about, but you have a way out. There's always a way out. Again, I'm being really vague here. I'll just no. stop talking about no, it. But I, I've been down that contract just that one time where I thought, okay, this is, I'm, in a, I'm in over my head. And, but the reason I mentioned that one is because in that particular scenario, this was so corporate and so big and so buttoned up from a legal standpoint that I knew from the start there will be no extras. Mm. I will complete exactly the tasks at hand, submit my invoice, get paid, and shake hands, and everybody leaves happy. And that's it. I, I think it's I think it's actually, I know you wanted to stop that, but I think it's so 
crucial for you to say that for other people to learn that because we went through a couple of hardships very similar where it was kind of like is this buttoned up all the way oh it is oh but we're still delivering a little bit more and then we got burned Hmm. so it's it's important for other artists to hear that because i don't think it's an unwritten rule that people don't talk about this just like i know we can't in certain ndas but the broader scope of understanding hey like these are things you have to look out for in these contract negotiations or signing a contract that no one really tells us about. Right. Even freelancers coming out of high school or college, wherever you're coming from, or you've been at an agency for a long time where your legal counsel did it for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Boom, right. you're in the real world. You have to do it. I know our CEO, he was doing it with one of our vendors. We got a three-year um, agreement with them. We're a preferred vendor, and that process was ungodly that no one ever told us we're going to have to do. It was sending contracts to Switzerland and, you know, shooting small videos to prove that we're doing this. And here's all this legal documents. And it was like, there's no one taught us this or no one told us, Hey, this is going to happen to you at some point because we see the world a little bit different. We're thinking art and beauty, right? But in reality, there's contracts in your creative process. Let's talk about music a little bit. Okay. Does music come into a play? Yeah, you know what's great about setting up my new office this past year. So to back up just a half a step, yeah, I've been I've been running the business from our house, had a third floor office, totally closed off. It was great, but as you can probably guess, and you already may already know, there's just there's conditions that aren't ideal in terms of running a business, like having people into your house. Yeah. So, anyway, open the office, set it up at a place called the Fort, which is down south here, South High Street. Heard great things about it. It's very cool. You guys should check it out sometime. Um, so I set up the office, and one of the great pleasures of setting that up was getting a sound bar set up and being able to just rock out because I was one of the first tenants in the building. <laughs> so I could really rock out, and it was okay. And, of course, you know, doing design work or editing or things like that, you can truly just crank it up. When I'm doing conceptual work, I actually don't play music, or if I play it, I play it very low. I just like silence, and I'm okay with that. Interesting. But if it's editing or illustrating... Um, you know, general editing or illustrating like that, then yeah, it's, it's as loud as I want to, I want to get it. So yeah, absolutely part of the process, probably 50, 60% of the day. Is there a genre that you go to in those moments or are you just oh, kind of yeah, all dude. over the board? It, it just depends on what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so if it's, if I really want background stuff, I've got a whole electronica playlist that ranges from, you know, late eighties into the present that is uh, just kind of my go-to background beats <laughs> and it's a, and it's a wide range. It's not all like, you know, crystal method, you know, it's, it's, it's some of that, but it's, um, some old like Fila Brasilia. You ever heard of those guys? I've, I've heard the name. Okay. Um, way back. This is like early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of stuff in between, like the guys that, um, you know, took a, everything but the girl songs and put electronica behind them. And, um, anyway, yeah, wide range. And then there's, then there's, um, a whole seventies playlist, which I will never apologize for. Absolutely. You should never, which includes lots of journey. Um, <laughs> but I have a, I, I'm a kid of the seventies. And so that's a really important era for me. I mean, in, in my not so humble opinion, I think all great music happened before 1970 and there's been a lot of great derivatives since then, but I think it really peaked around 1978 or 79. I think we, I think we kind of explored it. I, I could definitely agree. Okay. I, I, I definitely agree. I, I mean, knew I loved you, Blake. Yeah. <laughs> we in the office, we've got our sound bar over there that we put on, we blast, and we usually will do a Spotify 70s playlist or we'll grab the Guardians of the Galaxy playlist and just blast the entire 70s through Great. the office. And we love every second of it. You know, I mean, my dad grew up, I mean, he was huge Elton John fan. And so yeah. I just grew up with that. Led Zeppelin, that was just. That's what we grew up with, you know. I mean, we didn't. Let's let's just go there. I mean, Elton John did did Americana country better than a lot of Americana country <laughs> yeah. Americans did back in the seventies. He truly you know? did that one album or two. He just he was he was out of control as far as the quality. He's uh, he was unstoppable. He and was. I, I'm actually sad we we missed him coming to Columbus for his final goodbye tour. Hmm. Even though I feel like he'll be back, but I'm sad I didn't get to see him. I saw him when I was younger, and it was I still remember the entire concert like it was yesterday. When was this? This was, oh man, when did I see him? I was probably 2004, okay. somewhere around there. It was, um, oh, I do not remember what album he was touring. It was right when his albums kind of went off and no yeah. one really listened to his new albums. Right, but right. yeah, that whole era is, it, it. it's a deep process for us. I know internally, we just 
put it on, blast it, and we've got this massive clear glass board that we attach to, and okay. we start going. Okay. Well, the other genre that um, is kind of in between is uh, I, like here's here's a song I just picked up. It's called "The One to Wait" by the band called CCFX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Janet and I, my wife and I, were having dinner at the Guild House, and this song comes on, and one of my wife. Janet and I have this thing that, you know, we are phones down when we eat. Right. We just, we can't stand to go to a Mm -hmm. restaurant, see people talking on their, you know, hanging out with their phones. It's crazy. Anyway, whatever. Uh, So we're sitting there and this song comes on. So I tell you that the phone thing, because as much as I love to be focused in that conversation, if a great song is on in the background, then I want to know what it is. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's the song that was playing to the point where we got the meal wrapped up. We're getting the meal wrapped up. The timing was perfect. I got up and found the, uh, the host and I, I said, dude, what's this song? I tell you all that setup because that's the passion I have behind hearing great stuff. I, I will hunt this thing down, you know, Shazam or otherwise. I want to yep. know what that is. Mm-hmm. And, and that particular song was so good to me because it's that 80s genre that I dig so much because I'm as much as I'm a child of the seventies, I'm also very much a child of the eighties. That's when I was a teenager. So that's how old I am. Right. And that's when all the, the, the coming of age songs came for you. Yeah. Right. So there was all these bands like, Oh my gosh, we don't have enough time, but um, <laughs> so many great eighties bands like Danny Wilson and style council and everything but the girl and uh, prefab sprout. Who's actually making a comeback. Um, one of my favorite bands of all time is prefab sprout. And, um, this incredibly rich pop sound of the eighties that I just gravitate to. Mm. So when this song comes on, it's an, I think a new, much newer band. I'm really sure yeah, I haven't are. made the time to look it up, but I'm like, Oh my God, this is so eighties dude. This is great. <laughs> so yeah, that's where I'm at. Those are the three categories, electronica, seventies and eighties. I'm a pretty happy guy. Now that said, there's mm-hmm. one more. And that's uh, when I was in the Marine Corps and stationed in Hawaii, that was early nineties. So the grunge thing was heavy. Mm. And, um, so here's a, here's a great little story. So one day my buddy John and I are surfing on the North shore, not like North shore, North shore, mm-hmm. which was, I did once and found out the hard way. You don't surf the North shore. Yeah, you don't, you, do don't that. you don't surf pipeline. Yeah. Um, I almost got killed. So we were over by turtle Bay. We were at turtle Bay and we got up out of the water after, you know, catching some waves and we go up there to have a beer and I look over and I'm like, is that that band Pearl jam on the, on the, on the rocks there? No way. He's like, yeah, dude, it looks like, what's his name? Eddie something. You know, we're just, this is like 19, <laughs> that guy, Eddie, I don't, I don't know. 91, I think it was 91 or early 92. Anyway, it was, it was Pearl Jam hanging out. And then it all kind of came together for us because when we were down in the water, just bobbing, waiting for the next set, all the guys in the water around us were these pasty white dudes with long hair. And we're like, you guys don't live here. You know, clearly <laughs> don't live here. So, you know, we're bobbing around and I turned to one guy and I said, Hey, uh, where are you guys from? And we're from Seattle. And I said, what are you doing here? And he goes, well, we're roadies for this band called Soundgarden. And I was like, huh. So I'd heard of them too, you know? Hey, so it was, just, bit, it was, it was a cool time, to be, <laughs> wow. cool time to be in the scene, you know? Not that we were in the scene, but just to be around that, that um, time, you know, and have that music just hitting for the first time. Again, all of it a revamp from the 70s, mm. but a beautiful revamp, but I loved it. And I had my flannel tied around my waist before anybody <laughs> told me to. Did you have you your know? bands on too? Yes, I did. Yes, you did. <laughs> so are you a big Dave Grohl fan? I am. Janet and I love Foo ah, Fighters. I love him. I don't think he's the best voice in rock and no, roll or anything like that. Not. I mean, I think Chris Cornell had that covered. Yeah. Um, mm. May he rest in peace. That yeah. was still, it's still sad to me. Mm. Um, but yeah, I love Dave Grohl. What a yeah. showman. He's so, he's so passionate about that genre. Mm-hmm. It's just like, he's trying to keep it alive so hard. Yeah. And yeah. I, I love that. Just me and my best friend were just texting about the Grammys and it was like, some kind of unknown. They're not even really a rock band want it. And it was like, they're known, but it's not rock music. It didn't, it didn't have, it's all technic, you know, technical. It's all on the computer. It's not when right. Dave did the album a couple of years ago where they recorded in his garage yep. on tape decks. It was like that album still, I, I will never forget that album. Was it on four tracks or eight tracks or something? Uh, or I was believe, it maybe it's bigger than that, but it, it was, was, it was something around there. I don't yeah. remember exactly how they did it. Um, but I remember he cleared out his entire garage. I, I remember watching the documentary about it and it goes from him playing Wembley and crying with a hundred thousand people to him being a dad and playing, you know, j- drums in his guitar yeah. in his uh, garage and just so seeing cool. that passion in somebody. It, it it inspires me, I know for sure. So let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. It's your birthday party. You can have any three bands you want, come and play it. Dead or alive, who is it? 
Oh man, that is a very hard question. Uh, Prince. Mm. There's no right answers, by the way, but I might react. Prince, um, pro- probably the Foo Fighters, just because it would be a really good time with them. And man, I see. I I'm pretty young, so growing up early late nineties, early two thousands, the band Lincoln Park was a mm. big turning point for my friend group and that, that era and seeing the progression until Chester rest in peace, um, left. So probably those three bands, those were, yeah, Prince. Okay. So I love to ask that question, but I've never asked this question after asking the first question, who's your opener of those three and who's your head? <laughs> All right. Um, opener, opener would probably be Lincoln Park. Okay. Then, uh, probably, probably Foo Fires to then the Prince. I mean, Foo Fighters then Prince? Yeah, probably. Okay. Somewhere around. It's hard to say because I've heard all the stories about Foo Fighters and they play for five hours in their concerts. So it's like, <laughs> I'd love to see that. But also Prince has got, you know, I've heard about his vault of music that is sitting secured away somewhere that they're just starting to release yeah. where he's got, you know, thousands of songs that the world's never heard. So I'd love to hear all those at the same time. Yeah. So I love your mix. Again, there's not a right answer, but I was just sitting there getting goosebumps thinking about what if uh, Foo Fighters and Prince came out and did like a Purple Rain, oh. you know, some kind of crunchy version mm. of Purple Rain guitar yeah. guitar battle kind of thing, right? I think Dave yeah. and them did, they may have did uh, uh, Red Bray. I think they did a cover of that nice. a couple years ago, like nice. in live. They yeah. do always play a couple of them their shows now. And I, I distinctly remember that one, but that would be, do you have three at your birthday party? You know, it's funny. I always, sometimes I get this question thrown back at me by, uh, by folks and I, I and I always kind of stumble over the answer, which is sad. Um, I'll pick three. I would love to uh, have Joni Mitchell there. Mm-hmm. Um, Journey. Duh. Yeah. Number three. The original Journey lineup. Yeah, the original <laughs> Journey lineup. I mean, that new kid's fantastic. I it sounds I'm almost impressed. just like him. <laughs> right. I watched the documentary. I almost didn't watch it. It was totally worth yeah. it. I, was, I love this he's, guy. He's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's great. Uh, gosh, the third one's so tough, but believe it or not, I, you know, I don't have a perfect three, but I would actually say Prince also because I never got to see him live. Yeah. And Janet and I have seen the artists that we wanted to see in our lifetimes. Not that I'm a concert hound, but I've been to a lot of shows and we kind of have that list. And when he died, we realized, oh, that's the one we didn't see. Mm. You know, one of a few we never saw. So. I, I would have loved to seen his full band, him and guitar, mm-hmm. solos and everything like that. But I also would have loved to seen his final tour that he was on, mm. Prince and the Piano. Or uh, it was just, no, it was called uh, A Mic and a Piano or something like that, where he Ooh. just came out and they were they're starting to release a couple of like spots from it. And he would just riff on the piano through 30 seconds of his song going into Bowie, then coming back out into his song and going back into Bowie, then coming out into, oh, you know, man. Elton John. And it was like, he, he was a genius. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, I've got Goose my goosebumps. Yeah. But that's just thinking about it. I mean, some of the recordings, I remember I still listen to it probably once a month of him playing. We can be heroes by David Bowie. Hmm. I mean, I, I have, we can be heroes tattooed on the side of me because that was a big song for me growing up that for some reason I just took to it and it just meant a lot to me, but him playing hmm. that and just echoing through the halls of the theater. Oh man. Oh yeah. I'd, it's yeah, wild. Great. <laughs> All right, <laughs> so we'll jump. That was, there's a lot of goosebumps going on here. Let's jump over to a couple of questions. So, paper or iPad? Both. Both. Yeah. All right. I'm so again. I'm an older guy in the business. I'm in my late 40s, and uh, I grew up on paper, so that's a no-brainer. But the iPad was a was a game changer, and I went, ended up going to the I went ended up going to an Apple event at, during Adobe Max a few years back. Mm when they debuted it. So my buddy, Jeremy Slagle, who's here in town, he got passes to this thing. He was kind enough to allow me to come with him. And so we go into this private event for Apple and got to, got to play with it. And we were convinced. And there's a video floating around on, on YouTube someplace that Adobe put together that has me threatening to steal one of these during the <laughs> event. Um, and I'm, you know, trying to be a funny guy, which I'm not, but I was half serious. I mean, I really wanted one of those that What bad. year was this? This was 25. 20- was it 15? Okay. So a couple, a couple iPads. Yeah. It would have been 15, 2015 Adobe max, Mm. uh, the pencil, all that. So the new version is even better. So make a long story longer for me, 
every day, including today, iPad Pro with Procreate to the point where I'm giving a workshop on Procreate at Creative South this year mm. in, in April. I'm that much of a fanboy. Wow. It really has changed my process. So Amazing. part of that workshop, to do a quick plug for that, yeah, is um, to show people, there's so many great things out there on Procreate. You know, the, the last thing I'm gonna try to do is, is take two hours and pack all the great tidbits in there. But what I really wanna show during that workshop is how I actually use Procreate as a working professional for these exact projects, especially murals, which is a key part of what I do now, interior design work and mural work. I call it drawing on walls, <laughs> but Procreate's a, a killer product for doing that. It, combined with the iPad Pro and an HDMI cable and a projector. It's a, it's a setup that I can really turn and burn work quickly, way more quickly than, than doing it old school with a wheel and, you know, um, again, the old, the old version. Right. Yeah. So that's your process now is hooking up an iPad for, for your wall. Wall drawing yep. is iPad to projector to wall. Yeah, so here's here's one thing that is really great about that, and there are many reasons that I, I love this process. One of the best parts of that process is I will obviously do the sketches sometimes on paper, but it'll end up on the iPad on in Procreate, and I'll, I can punt those out to the client, of course, super quickly from Procreate and get some feedback. The best part is when we get into their space and we throw that thing on the wall with a projector, I love the part where I let them pinch and zoom and scale and move things around because the reality of a lot of this work that I do, it's it's not necessarily mapped perfectly from edge to edge. It has the ability to, to flex. Mm. And I build into the scope the option of doing some live edits during that process. Not big stuff, but it's really fun to give the controls over to the client at that part of the process and say, you know, we can put it here or we can put it there or we can scale it like this or we can scale it like this and just let them play. It's, it lets them be a kid again. It lets them explore and all those things are true. Mm. So for that alone, it's worth it. In your initial design process, when a client says, go ahead, start designing and you sit down, I, saw, I know you said you turn the music down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Where do your ideas come from in your head? Do you start just sketching whatever free flowing you're thinking, or do you have a lookbook you work off of and build before? How is your, your, that small little process of when you initially first start sketching out an idea? Well, I have to add before that, I, there's a, obviously conversations with the client. Right, like, right. Like I've said six times in the mm -hmm. talk today is, you know, the, the expectations are set. You know, who are we talking to? What's the, what's the, what's the goal of this piece? What's this piece trying to communicate? Um, really, really getting some specific material around that. And uh, I'll give you another example. I'm working on a um, wall right now for um, Bold Penguin, uh, insurance tech related mm. startup here that's mm -hmm. in town. They're in the Chase building. Yeah. Um, working on a project with them. And so for that project, in terms of the, the conceptual process, in this particular case, I, I'm sitting down with their creative team and brainstorming with them, at least the initial thing. And that's actually been true of a lot of my projects, especially these interior wall designs, because I want them as part of that process. So those sessions last an hour or two. I don't like to have them last more than an hour because we all have short attention spans. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, we um, and the other part of that process is we make sure that as those sessions continue, usually players will trickle out. So I'd rather have a lot of people in the room, all kinds of people who are not stakeholders even, that can contribute things, and I encourage that. But I'm very careful as we move forward that that number gets a lot lower. And by the time we're down to selecting a concept, I want a single stakeholder in the room. It's really important to me. It doesn't always happen, but I can say 95% to put a number on it of the jobs that I've done in the last three and a half years I am talking to a single stakeholder. It's critical for efficiency. It's one of the reasons I left big agency because I don't want to talk to six stakeholders. It's always complicated in the wrong ways, as you already know. You're nodding, yeah. Yes, I am. So, um, so anyway, and when it going back to what you asked, when I get to that actual process now, I'm alone and I'm in the studio and I'm starting to draw, the reality is I've got a ton of information around me in terms of uh, images that they've pointed to or I've pointed to that we've agreed, yeah, that's in the right zone or tone. I've got uh, words that matter. I've got their audience in mind. I've got, again, a whole bevy of things that I can say, okay, let's soak all that stuff in. And then I start sketching. And so in terms of what happens next, it really depends on what all those conditions are. 
you know, so, so you start live sketching in the room with them. I, I do, do sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So yes. So when I'm in the, in, in those concept sessions, sessions with a client, I love to do really loose sketches with a client to get feedback, get a reaction from them. Is it this or is it this? You know, it's kind of like an eye test with a client with creative. Mm-hmm. Again, the sketches are really raw, but at least it gets that, keeps that dialogue moving in an effective and efficient way. When I'm alone then, let's say for example, I'm, it's a letter, it's truly a lettering thing. I need to be very careful that I'm, I'm lettering something that matches the tone that is appropriate for not only the statement that's being lettered out, but also the audience that's going to see that, the space that it's in. All those con- all those conditions are critically important. Now, that said, whether it's lettering or whether it's an illustration of penguins or whatever it is, I like to, to use really basic shapes. Um, an unsharpened pencil, even in Procreate or analog, either way. But I think the worst mistake a lot of us designers make is start with well-sharpened objects to work with, whether it's a, you know, like a knife or a, <laughs> a pencil or, a, you know, a thin marker. That's a bad idea because you're going to fine tune right off the bat. And it's not a great way to start that process. I just encourage people just think big shapes, think rough, think raw and think fast. And I know that is really obvious. And a lot of people say, God, I've heard that 17 times Seth Godin and everybody else. But, um, I also would offer that, are you actually doing it? We all listen to these podcasts or watch these tutorials and we, we glean what we want from those things, but putting that into practice has been a critical part of my success. Draw fast, draw rough, and keep the expectations, the parameters, all that, keep all that stuff in mind as you work. So you keep a flow. You always want to keep a flow when you're going. Yeah, and don't exhaust yourself. You know, I think um, you can you know, do it in small chunks you know, 10, 15 minutes and then walk away from it. You know, if you think about what, what the early painters did, they had a, a, a simple but brilliant idea. They'd paint a little bit and then they'd step way back away from their canvas and they'd look at it from a distance. It allowed them to judge light and color and all the different little characteristics that they were trying to get from that painting. But when we get on these dumb computers, myself included, and procreate on an iPad Pro, and I start noodling with a sharp object, I, I'm stuck in the weeds. And it does me no service and no favors to get that job done efficiently if that's where I'm stuck. So these are things I just try to remind myself of. Again, I tell you this stuff because I'm guilty of it. You know, I still get caught down in the weeds with a little sharp pencil, just noodling on the dumbest little thing. And I'm like, that's not going to get this done today. So that's my six and a half cents about that. I I love it. So how do you deal with creative burnout? Do you ever get it? Or have you kind of mastered the flow of it? I don't know if I've... I don't think I'll ever be a master of anything. Um, <laughs> master idiot. Um, but, uh, <laughs> aren't we all? Yeah. For Janet and I both, our health is really critically important there. So I, f- if I find myself, you know, an hour and a half, two hours into whatever the process is that I'm doing and I haven't moved my body, then that's the first step. So, you know, I may just get down on the floor and do some planks, some yoga, some yoga like moves. Um, some type of physical thing to get the blood flowing. Again, you hear people say that all the time and you hear people, you see people nodding their heads to that kind of advice, but few of us do it. And again, I'm guilty of not doing it too. I can go for two or three hours just drawing and sitting on my butt and that's not healthy. So I have a standing desk and if you were to actually, you know, put a a camera in the room and watch me, it would be comical because (laughs) You know, I'll, I'll throw one right knee up and then the left knee up. And I, you'd think, what is this idiot doing? I'm just trying to move my body, you know, while I'm standing there at my, uh, my fancy pants desk and, and doing my thing. How long do you plan to do this? I'll do it till I die. Yeah, I have Never, no, no retirement no, plans? No, no interest in retiring. Yeah. You know, I think th- what we have now is this really blessed life of um, I'm not getting rich, but I'm, I'm making a good living. I'm paying the bills. Uh, Janet and I are, have the ability to travel. Uh, you know, I've traveled more in the last three and a half years than I've traveled in, uh, okay. I don't want to be too inaccurate there, but (laughs) I've traveled more in three and a half years than I've traveled in 10 years working for somebody else. Mm. That's accurate. And I've given more away to charity than I ever gave when I was making a lot more money working for the man or working for a big agency. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying it's just, it's a very radical shift in how things are now because of of how, how we set this up. You're happy. I'm content. Content. Yeah. And not always, 
not always. You know, I, I struggle with being content every single day. Mm. I had a rough day today. It was one of those days where I feel like I was scattered and just not able to focus and too much in front of me. And, you know, I've got a massive trip coming up very soon. That's going to, um, it's, it'll be the biggest trip of my life. And, um, and with that looming uh, and, and the workshop happening at Creative South, I'm asking the, the you know, the, the obvious questions. Can I pull this off and mm -hmm. still run a business? Can I go away that long and still you know, can not disappear? You know, how important is travel to you? Extremely. It's extremely important because I think there's a, an absolute value to seeing and smelling and tasting new things. Uh, I, I can't emphasize that enough. And I, I, I would deeply encourage anybody listening to this to get off your butt. And if anything, take a, you know, start small if you have to take a long weekend road trip as far as you can drive before you have to be back on Monday. Um, but uh, I think there's an even more radical and, and beautiful blessing of getting out of this country mm. and being around people that make you a little uncomfortable and talking to them. Um, even if it's just a simple transaction at a store, start there and, and see how that goes for you. I would, I would offer that you'll be surprised how easy it is to engage with people in other worlds. Um, so uh, give you an example. I've been to Israel a couple times and starting the business and they were both extended trips. And in one of those trips, I, we hired a, a Jesus following is, Israeli uh, former soldier. They're all, you'd think they're all former soldiers over there, but anyway, <laughs> he's taking us around and it was during that time when the stabbings were really prevalent in, in Jerusalem and elsewhere. Uh, this was a couple years ago. Sorry, a few years ago. So we're in a hotel one night. There's a lot of IDF around because of the stabbings and they were, they were so bad during that particular month. And um, we're at the desk of the hotel and there's a transaction that happens in front of us. And he looked, I noticed he was looking at me. He was watching. I found out to see if I was watching. And what I saw was two IDF soldiers bring a meal and hand it over to the, the desk clerk and they leave. You know, brief conversation, not necessarily friendly or otherwise, just, you know, they handed it over and chit chat, you know, and they were gone. He said, did you see that? I described it back to him. He said, what you are seeing, he says, the one soldier, I know both the soldiers. He says, the one soldier is a Jesus follower. The other soldier is, an, is Arab. Uh, he said, or he says three, I'm sorry, three soldiers. The third soldier is Jewish. And he said, uh, the clerk is Arab. He said, all they did was just bring that person a meal to say, thank you for housing them for the night. So you have these very radical different cultures that if you only pay attention to American news, they're constantly at each other's throats. The reality, he said, is we get along better than people expect here. It's a different situation. The other, way, the other example I can give you there was we were in the area where these stabbings were happening, like within blocks. And I remember watching the American news that night and their news report said, the picture that news report painted, the way they clipped together the clips, painted a very different picture than the scene I had been standing in that same afternoon. It was not as they portrayed it on American news on CNN. I'm not pretending, and I'm not trying to say that to say, well, it's all a conspiracy and it's right. all fabricated. But what I am saying is that there was, a, there was a sensational approach to that broadcast that was not accurate as a person who was standing there in that same area that day. So two, kind of longish examples uh, and of course just from one country but I can tell you a lot more we don't have time for it but um, those are those are the important things mm. you realize the world I live in here in America is not the whole world right the, the world is a happy place for the most part I mean we we spent a lot of time in Europe actually last year we were in uh, where we were in Berlin Barcelona London uh, Edinburgh Scotland and then we went to uh, Rome so we were over there quite a bit and cool. it was just like us personally, we were like, we want to move. We want, like, we want to be over there. Yeah. We don't really, it's just such a different lifestyle and culture that I didn't know existed until we went mm. and just seeing it where it's like, you looked around, we were in Berlin and it was 1130 on a Wednesday night and it was packed in the streets and mm. like people were drinking and eating, but you didn't see a cell phone in sight. Mm. at all like nothing everyone just sitting there talking and drinking and eating together and it, you know 11 30 on wednesday night you don't see that except maybe new york but even in new york it's phones are out yeah it was such a weird concept when we were like wow like that's what but they don't go to work till 10 o'clock we found out there <laughs> like they go in a lot later but it's because they they understand art beauty life happiness 
people. It's like a, it's a human connection that they understand. And it took us those trips to be like, wow, this, this is a lot different than America. You know, you go into the local bar down here and it's like, you know, everyone's got their cell phone out or it's just like, or there's not that many people. It's, it's a weird kind of concept, but they actually cherish that. And I think we don't do that here enough. Yeah, totally agree. And so travel, travel for us, travel, travel is the world for us. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we were looking, we're like, man, can we move to Italy? Can we move to, we want to go to London. Like, I don't know if, have you been to London? No, my wife was there last year for a race. We love London. I mean, and London weirdly like loves Americans. They, they kind of give us, it was interesting with out bringing politics into it. It's like we got in a cab and they'd be like, oh, American. And he'd be like, oh, Trump. And we'd be like, oh yeah. He'd be like, yeah. And then he'd just be like, so where are I from America? He would just kind of like, he would just kind of acknowledge things like that. And then yeah. he'd be like, well, you're a friend. Like it was, it was so warming, even Rome, like everyone was super nice there for the most part. And Rome's a little bit more touristy in the, that side of it. But for the most part, we didn't have a single problem with, you know, someone not understanding us or us not understanding them. They always trying to fa- try and found a way to understand each other, mm-hmm. even if it was just a smile. Mm-hmm. And that right. was, that was a big thing. Our, our company here, we actually read Dan, uh, um, Carnegie's book, how to Infer- influence people and make friends, I think was the title probably butchered that. But in it, it talked about the biggest currency in the world to make friends is just smile at somebody. Hmm. And we, we learned that very quickly overseas where it was just like outside of the country, like smile and they're going to smile back. Like, isn't that amazing? Everyone's so happy. Simple. Everyone, we're all living the same life, just different aspects or different perspectives. But at the end of the day, we all just want to be happy. Yeah. We, we, uh, we were in Rome, um, just flying through and there was a there was an American couple stepping onto the elevator in front of us and they were older you know old enough to know better and the one guy says coffee coffee here in Rome's terrible and he wow. went on to you know babble on about mm-hmm. it for the minute or so I had to listen to it it was hard not to say anything to him like hey dude you know you can have your opinion but let's not be he was loud and I thought just just take it down a couple of octaves would you or a couple of decibels I should say um or both, but, um, <laughs> it's that kind of stuff that mm. I think, you know, sometimes the best we can, some of the best we can do for others is just to listen mm. and consider that maybe we don't need to speak into their lives or whatever you want to call it. Um, and again, we can probably both sit here and tell right. stories yeah. for an hour about that kind of yeah. thing about how, how beautiful it is just to absorb what's around you and feel, don't feel like you have to contribute necessarily. You're contributing by listening. That's enough. Outside of music, like we're talking about Prince and uh, all of that, it was such an influential person for me was Anthony Bourdain, which mm. when he passed, that was that was so rough on me and our CEO because, again, we looked to him on how to travel, you know, mm. how to interact with a different culture. And so when he passed, it was like, man, that one, that one hit us hard mm. just because he was kind of the guiding light on, you can go to, you know, you can go have a beer with Obama in Vietnam. Like it's... Who ever thought that would happen? And him, like all these other countries where it's like, oh, it's, you know, the Middle East is terrible, like you were talking about, like, but it's really not. It's actually a beautiful culture. It we is. just don't, we're not exposed to it in the proper way. And so that one was a big for us with traveling and just our own life of understanding that in perspective and bring, trying to bring it back to our local little community here of we've got to understand and listen to other people. Yeah. It's so huge. You're spot on. With it. And, and to bring that home, literally bring it home. My <laughs> accountant is from Jordan. So as a, as a guy who sometimes, you know, is a horrible uh, example of following Jesus, but still I, I try, it's great to have a conversation with him about his perspective on the Arab Jew conflict. Uh, fascinating. And much of that conversation is just, I ask a question and I just stop talking for a while. I, I want to hear, everything he has to say about it. And it's not pretty sometimes. And yet I also get glimpses of what he says. I get glimpses of what happened at that hotel in the Jerusalem quarter where there is a a deep desire to get along with each other Mm. and put these things behind us. Now, again, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. You know, it's a hot mess over there. The Middle East is a crazy (laughs) place in some ways, but any crazier than America? (laughs) Sometimes not. Mm. Yeah. And to wrap things up on that, on the book we just read, it was just like you were talking about, it was talking about actively listening and also just finding an interest in somebody. Mm-hmm. And so you're interested in what your accountant is saying and accountants are <laughs> interesting people. They're known to be boring people roughly, but when he has something such interesting to say about being from Jordan and his perspective on it, yeah. you got to sit down and listen. Yeah. 
Well, Dylan, this has been great. Yeah, <laughs> I've really enjoyed this. Is there any anything you want to plug? Well, I'm on Instagram at Mengus Design, M-E-N-G-E-S Design, and the site is Mengus.Design. Thank you, man. Thank you.
outside Chicago Can't stop driving I don't know why So many questions I need an answer Two years later You're still on my mind Whatever happened to Amelia Earhart Who holds stars Up in the sky It's true love Just once in Yeah. 